Welcome to the Conservation Inspiration Podcast, which brings you stories about our planet's most incredible, quirky, and amusing species and the people who dedicate their lives to protect them. My name is Rosamira Guillen, and I will be your host in this podcast series, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Land Acquisition Fund of the IUCN National Committee of the Netherlands. The Land Acquisition Fund provides small grants to local NGOs to acquire threatened patches of wilderness to protect many species on the brink of extinction. One of those NGOs is Fundación Proyecto Tipi, a Colombian nonprofit organization of which I am the co-founder and director. Since 2004, my organization leads conservation efforts to protect the cotton top tamarind, a critically endangered tiny monkey with a hairdo resembling Mr. Albert Einstein, which is only found in the tropical forests of northern Colombia, nowhere else in the planet, and it is the cutest monkey ever. In this podcast series, I interview conservationists to learn about their personal commitment to protect some of the most extraordinary species that we share our planet with. Today's guest is Alberto Campos, a conservation hero for one of the coolest bird species, the Araripe manakin, which is also the cover image of this podcast. Alberto is a conservation biologist, and he is the co-founder and director of Aquasis, a Brazilian NGO promoting endangered species and habitat conservation in the coastal state of Seattle. Alberto is also a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia. With Alberto, we talk about his commitment to protect the Araripe mannequin. Why is the Araripe mannequin such a special bird? Also, we talk about the threats and challenges that Araripe mannequins face in their habitat, how it is to engage and work with local communities, and how the Araripe mannequin became an incredible source of their pride. Hi, Alberto. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat about your incredible conservation work with the Araripe mannequin. Before going into details, can you please introduce yourself and explain how you got drawn into this inspiring conservation cause? I got involved in, in professionally with conservation when I was at college and I met a, a really good group of people that were willing to do something to improve the situation, the environmental situation of the world. So when we were in college, we decided to get together and, and found an NGO. Uh, Quasis. That was back 19, 1994. And our, our mission was to prevent in, extinctions in our region. So most of us were students at the time. There were a few professors. And most of us, when we finished uh, the university, we managed to start working for, for Aquasis. And some of us have been doing that for 20 years. So I guess I got involved in conservation because I met this really good group of people. And uh, because of this collective energy, I think we were motivated and, and we had energy enough to found and manage an NGO for so, for so long. Yeah, that is that is amazing that you guys started as a student collective effort and now it's been, you know, over 20 years working for your wildlife. But before you went to college, did you always wanted to, you know, to go to school, to biology school or to be a conservationist or this is something, this is something sparked your interest in this? Well, as far as I remember, I always wanted to do biology and and work with conservation. I think I was born like that. I, I was born loving <laughs> animals, and I was born trying to protect them and to solve all the injustices that I would see around me that uh, people were doing with animals 
So I decided that uh, besides protecting animals, when I went to college, I realized that extinction was the most pressing issue because extinction is forever and we didn't want to lose all these important pieces of the natural puzzle because in the future, we believe that people will need all these pieces, all these species to restore ecosystems and recover ecosystem services that are important for our well-being. And uh, Alberto, so when did your interest about the Araripe mannequin started? Well, when we started the NGO, we decided to to plan which were the most endangered species in our region. So initially, we realized that the, the marine manatee or the Antillean manatee was highly endangered in our region and nobody didn't really know very much about its status. So we started working with marine mammals, and after a few years, when the project was consolidated and we had a team working full-time, we decided to, to procure, to search other highly endangered species, to put up new conservation teams to start another long-term conservation process. So that's when I met Weber Silva. Uh, Weber is one of the top ornithologists in Brazil, and he is the guy who, while he was also still a student, he helped discover the species. So he's one of the discoverers of the Araripe manakin as a new species. And, uh, and then we realized that the Araripe manakin was endemic to the state of Ceará, where it was the focus of our you know, geographic mission. So when we realized that we had enough uh, people and budget for that, we started a new long-term process at Aquasis. Now we have four long-term processes, one, one for the Antillean manatee, one for the Araripe manakin, another for the formerly critically endangered gray-breasted parakeet, and one for migratory shorebirds. So now we have four long-term conservation pro- programs with the most, with the four most endangered birds and mammals in our region. So Alberto, in, in, uh, you're talking about Weber, right, which is uh, the ornithologist that identified this, uh, the Araripe mannequin. How long ago was he able to identify the species in there in your location? Weber was actually in a field trip with his professor. He, he was doing his master's degree at the, in a different city. So they coincidentally, they came to Sierra in a field trip to, to search for, for cave animals. So this, this area has lots of caves. So they were visiting one of these caves and there was a, there, there was a spring. There was a water spring coming out of the cave. So they followed the spring and then Weber heard a song that he's never heard before. And when he looked at the bird, he immediately realized it was a new species. Because the Aripe manakin is unmistakable. And this gave rise to this 20-year-long project that we are conducting. It, it is endemic from this region. It's not, it's not seen anywhere else. It's the only place in the world where you can find the Aripe manakin. It is endemic from this region. It's only found in three municipalities around the Chapada do Araripe. And that's why the Chapada do Araripe is an important bird area, and especially an alliance for zero extinction area. I love these species that, that have that uniqueness. And it is the same in our case with cotton-top tamarins. To think about one species only found in a very little corner of the whole planet, it's amazing, don't you think? Yes, it's amazing that you only find the Radita Manakin in these three municipalities in a very small area. And uh, it's not so good for the bird because when you have a very small range, you're more prone to extinction. But one good thing about being uh, endemic to one area is that we've been using that to create a, a pride campaign with the local people and local communities 
and telling them that they are the only stewards of this bird. If you don't take care of them, no one else will do. So this is being very critical to make the people in the Ararifi get involved and, and feel like they have to protect the Ararifi mannequin because it's something you only find in the whole world. It's only there. And it's their responsibility. They should be the stewards of the Ararifi mannequin. Yes, I, I agree with you, Alberto. And, and it is, it is a, a big challenge because of the restricted habitat, but it's at the same time an opportunity to engage people and to create a sense of pride and a sense of ownership and also a sense of responsibility, just as you are sharing with us. But tell us a little more about the species, the Araripe mannequin. It, it has a, just a beautiful, beautiful red head, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it has this beautiful red crest. It's very unique, uh, uh, very different from the other birds from the family. Uh, the male is strikingly beautiful with this uh, uh, color pattern, and the female is very mild. It's a, it's a green color, uh, camouflaged, so the female is, was made not to be noticed because she takes care of the nests alone. Now, the other Ripe Manakin, it patrols the territory, but it doesn't take care of the nest, and it doesn't feed the chicks. So... The female does all these tasks alone, and then she has to be very cryptic, which means that she has to be able to disappear in the landscape. That's why she has this green coloration, the same color as the foliage. Yeah, so she mimetizes really well with with the uh, with the setting where she has to care for for the chicks, right? So I, I hear that the male, which has the red crest, has a very interesting name in Portuguese. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes, the male has an interesting name in Portuguese. It's called Soldadinho do Araripe, and it means the little soldier from the Araripe. Uh, the name probably, the name came because the similar species that we have, uh, the other species of the same genus Antilophia, it's called the little soldier. So this was baptized the little soldier of the Araripe. And the, the, the interesting thing is that we've been using this, this name to tell that the little soldier is here to protect the water springs. Because another very curious thing about the Araripe mannequin is that it, uh, it nests only above running water. Uh, small creeks and streams, you know, they get, they get together the, the vegetation of the, of the streams and they build the nests right above the, the running water, probably to avoid predators. So because of this characteristic, the Araripe mannequin is a very good indicator of, of water quality. Because when the water disappears, the mannequin disappears as well. So we've been using this characteristic as a symbol for the Araripe region and the Araripe mannequin as a symbol for water conservation. These are our little soldier that will protect all the water springs. And this has been making a huge difference in engaging people in protecting the bird. When you talk about protecting water in a semi-arid place, then things get really serious with people. But we've been using this connection to help protect the bird. And I think ultimately... What will save the Araripe mannequin from extinction is this connection with the water. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to that very strongly, Alberto, because that is exactly one of the approaches we are taking in Proyecto Titi to engage uh, farmers. In, in, uh, I think you would agree that for conservation to be, to connect people with that, you need to make it relevant, right, to, to the different audiences. So in the case of, of the farmers, I'm guessing you're talking about the people that live close to these streams is the importance of having water for your day-to-day -day life. And if, if saving the bird will save also, will, or would, they're closely related, 
then that means that it, it's benefits for the species and it benefits for the people, right? Because if you save water sources, then you will have it available for you and your family. In our cases, we work with the farmers to protect the uh, the streamways and to uh, protect the forest that creates connectivity for the monkeys, for the cotton top tamarins here in Colombia. And but for them, what is important is saving water for the dry season. So I I think uh, it is important to to make conservation relevant for the different audiences to make a, a stronger connection with that. So Alberto, tell us a little more about about the area, about the Chapada do Araripe, which is uh, the ha- the main habitat for the Araripe mannequin. Well, Chapada do Araripe is a very very unique place. It's uh, it's in the heart of the Brazilian Caatinga biome, which is a, a semi-arid biome, but because of its characteristics of the terrain and the way the water flows, it, it's, it's able to, to maintain a moist forest. So we have this beautiful moist forest surrounded by, by, by dry environment, and you only find the Araripe manakin in the moist forest. So it, we call this like an oasis, an, o, an oasis of rainforest surrounded by dry forest. And because of the, the location of the Chapada, Chapada is a, an old Portuguese word or plateau. So the Chapada is a very large plateau, like a mesa, so it's a very large top, like a 100 kilometer top, very, very flat. And on top of this plateau, you have a dry forest. But because of the cracks in the slopes of the, of the plateau, there's lots of water seeping. We have more than 100 water springs seeping from the cracks along the slopes of the plateau. And it's this water that flows all year round that maintains this unique moist forest. This is considered a, an enclave of, uh, of the Atlantic forest, but the more we study it, we see it's a very different, it's a unique type of forest. We don't find it anywhere else in the world. We call it Araripe forest, and that's the only place in the world where you find the Araripe mannequin. That is amazing. And what are the main uh, conservation issues or challenges that you're facing in the in the Chapada de Araripe? Well, Chapada, unfortunately, is one of the poorest regions in Brazil. So we have the same suit of problems that most people in, in South America has in, in underdeveloped places. There's uh, unsustainable agriculture, there's uh, large soybean monocultures advancing over a natural habitat, uh, some energy projects related to oil, uh, more recently to sand oil extraction in, in the Chapada, uh, gypsum extraction, so it's mining, deforestation, urban growth, around the natural habitat. And since it is a very limited habitat, we have to make people understand it, it is very unique. It's different from any other forest in the world. And uh, the set of species we have there and the services that this forest provides for us are very unique. And I think we've been only managing to convince people the importance of conserv- conserving the forest, the Araripe forest, is because people are realizing that the places where the forest have, has been cut the water level, the water in the wells is going down. So the more you cut the forest, the less infiltration you have and the less, less water you have in your well. So this has been very instrumental in convincing people that you have to leave the forest standing. Alberto, is there any legal protection uh, to the Chapada, uh, the Araripe, or, or the region, or parts of the region, or no, or not at all? There, there, there are two uh, protected areas large public protected areas in, in the area. 
And uh, one of them encompasses most of the Chapada, but the problem is that this protected area is a, is a sustainable use protected area. So practically anything is allowed inside the protected area if it's in the management plan. So it's really, it's a one million hectare protected area. There are cities inside the protected area. There's mining going on the protected area. There's a cement factory inside the protected area. So you see, it's very flexible. Uh, what, we, what we've been trying to do is that using these interesting instruments, which is a protected area, been established since 1998, and we've been trying to be part of the management council of the protected area, and we've been trying to influence legislation, and especially the management plan of the protected areas, in order to make the, the small area where the mannequin leaves to be a fully protected area. Alberto, do you have uh, numbers of the individuals in this area? There are roughly 800 individuals, which is very small. So even even though for, for a small area like that, you know, it's a small population. And we've been working very hard on protecting nesting areas because we think that this is one of the bottlenecks. And that's why we, we, we proposed for the IUCN Netherlands to, to purchase uh, a, a reserve. So we, we proposed for the land acquisition fund to, to purchase one reserve, our first reserve in the Aripe. And uh, we managed to do a collaboration with IUCN Netherlands to, to create the Oasis Araripe Reserve. So that is the area that, that the land acquisition fund helped you uh, purchase. So it is, it is mostly nesting sites? It was purchased mainly because it was a nesting site. And uh, now we have, I think, 11 nesting uh, territories in, in the reserve. And uh, when we started, I think we had eight. So we already had an, an improvement in, in the number of nesting territories, uh, which is very promising because the Arariti Manakin establishes a territory and every year the couple will go back there to, to raise their chicks and, and establish their nests. So uh, the Land Acquisition Fund helped us to, to buy our first reserve. And a, a few years later, we managed to, to buy a neighbor and to double the size of the reserve, and hopefully we'll keep increasing to establish corridors with our reserve to larger protected areas. Planning and choosing strategically the location and the neighbors, it's key to what you can do with with small areas. And, and for us, it was exactly like that. We are actually neighbors uh, of a national park that is completely isolated to, to other forest fragments in the area. And our monkeys, the cottontops, need uh, the continuity of the habitat to find resources and to move around, right? And uh, this piece of land, it neighbored to the national park, but it also connects the national park to other corridors and forest areas that provide that bridge, you would say, right, for animals, or not only for the monkeys, but for wildlife overall, to move around freely with a continuous habitat. So I, I would second that on being really strategic uh, when you're doing your planning and when you're choosing the, the areas that can be prioritized for benefiting your species and, and the habitat. Exactly. <clears throat> and especially if you're thinking in the long term, if you want to do some uh, reformation projects in your land, it's very, very important to have a core area. A core area is an area that has wildlife that can overspill to your boundaries and populate your area when you start protecting it. So it's, it's important to have a core area as a neighbor or with a corridor connecting your small reserve to a larger area so that you can have uh, animals 
coming to your area and repopulating it again. And when they, when they realize that it's a safe area, they will stay there and they will have, help restore the ecosystem and restore the ecosystem services. No, that is a that is a great approach. Uh, as you were saying before, some, some species are indicators of good habitats, right, of, of the habitats. And also, like, sometimes... Uh, We use key species to to spread the word about our conservation work, but when you're saving the habitat for that particular species, you're actually saving it for many other species that share a home, right, in 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 the same habitat. So, good ambassadors for for their home, we could say. This is a very really important point. You know, we we don't do this just for the endangered species. The endangered species is like a flagship, like an ambassador for us. We conserve the whole habitat and all the ecosystem functions and the services they provide. Exactly. It's not only for the animals. Because I do get asked that question quite a bit. It's like, okay, what if the monkey goes goes extinct? <laughs> it's like, well, it is not only the monkey. It's a whole, you know, balance and uh, in nature, many species that depend on each other. And it's good also to show that that these are folks, species, we could call them, that speak for the whole habitat and not only for ha for animals but for people and we were uh, discussing about relevance of water for human communities well you, you mentioned a, a very important question that people recurrently ask us is why are you saving this bird and we say without this bird a few species of plants will disappear because the Arita Manakin is a really really good seed disperser Uh, and some species of plants, they don't have many dispersers, so the Araritia Marikin does a really good job in dispersing the seeds of some small marginal plants that not all other birds do. So as we lose species in a forest, there is a cascading effect, like a domino effect of losing other species that depend on these species. So in the long time, what we're doing with extinction is that we, we are impoverishing ecosystems to a point that they cannot provide all the services that they need. Yeah. Pollination, seed dispersal, uh, carbon storage, uh, mediation of some predator-prey relations. Yes, I actually, Alberto, one of the concepts that we teach in our education programs that we do in, in the communities close to the forest that we protect goes about the importance of the species within its own ecosystem. And uh, for for monkeys, it's also seed dispersal that they eat a lot of different fruits from many different trees from the forest within their territory, pooping, and and when they poop, these seeds come up as trees later on. And I think it's something about the poop, maybe that the kids love to think about the process, but how it all naturally happens and and why it is important for that to happen. So. And I was, I wanted to ask you, how do you, how do you guys are involving communities or working with the communities around? You're saying there's a highly populated area, uh, within, within the habitats. There's two major ways that we like to get people involved. One is a more broad, general way to our awareness campaign. That's something we do from day one in a long-term conservation project and we never stop. And, uh, thanks to the beauty of the Mikey and, and the, the fact that it's unique to this region. I think we managed to to turn this bird into a, a local symbol. You know, uh, 20 years ago, nobody really ever heard about this bird. And when we started showing uh, pictures and what the bird does to the forest and its role as an indicator of water quality, 
and especially because it's unique to the region, then people started paying attention. And now it's a it's a local celebrity, really. Uh, there's several logos, like a music festival logo has the Ararite Manakin. Uh, the tourism logo of the region has an Ararite Manakin. I have a collection of logos that people put the Ararite Manakin, and we're very <laughs> proud of that. that people really embrace the campaign. So this is one one general way to involve people from the city, which are more decision makers, and they are very influential. And also to involve people in rural communities, which will be the real on the on the ground partners. And to involve the on the ground partners, I think our second strategy is to to be a role model. You know, we, 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 instead of talking to them and, and telling them what to do, we try to do things in our land, and then we invite them to come and see. So it's not just talking. They can see that oh, if you manage your, your water in a certain way, you can actually save water. If you change your your irrigation procedures, you can actually use less water to irrigate more areas. But I think this is the best way to, to show them the, uh, the change is by being the change and using our reserves as models of change and sustainability. So what we do is we bring the community inside the reserve for various reasons. We bring the kids to do bird watching. We tell them that birding is important and they can also make a living out of it. Because birding is, is increasing very fast in the Araripe, mainly because of the Araripe manakin. So there's lots of foreign people coming to, to the Araripe just to see the birds, and they realize that there's lots of endemic, that there's lots of birds that are unique to the area. And this is a, an opportunity to be a bird guide and, and make a, a, a really decent salary compared to other alternatives uh, by uh, focusing on ecotourism. This is one, one way we, we try to, to motivate them to do more sustainable activities. Uh, the other way is, is, uh, showing the, uh, the water management systems that we're trying to, to implement in our reserve in order to reduce, uh, water waste and to optimize water use. Uh, a, a third way would be hiring people from the community to work inside the reserves. You know, instead of just enforcing the, the local poachers, we try to hire the local poachers to be our enforcers because they know where other poor people go for bush meat. And they also influence the community saying, listen, uh, we don't really need to go for bush meat. You know, with, with, uh, with this salary, I can buy more chickens than I can eat. So it's better to have a, uh, a, a job working for aquatics than poaching the reserve. And, and so things like that, you know, many, many different ways to involve the community. There's no one single recipe. But there, there should be many different ways to involve many different people in the community with different orientations and different priorities. Yeah, I, I can relate to that as well. And it is very important, I agree, to have an approach for the different audiences. I wanted to ask you, have you seen, as a result of the visits, um, especially the, the water management uh, visits with the communities, have you seen any changes that can benefit the, uh, the work, the conservation work you are leading? There's a, there's a few things that we've been noticing that the communities are interested in learning, especially water use, water access rights, and the sustainable agricultural practices and agroforestry. I think these themes uh, have been, they are more interested in, in these themes. And uh, in terms of the water management, what we've been trying to show them is that uh, there are some simple practices that you can do to reduce water waste and increase the area that you, you can irrigate with a certain amount of water. Uh, the other thing that the, the other difference we've been noticing in them 
and I think this is a, a especially marked difference, is their understanding of their legal rights in terms of access to water. And uh, this is something we've been telling them that they have a right to water. It's a public good. The water doesn't belong to anyone, not even the landowner. And, and some people don't know that. They think that uh, the water belongs to the landowner. But it's not. The landowner has the responsibility to keep the water clean as it passes through his land. So people are being more aware of that and are asking the water company to enforce this law so they can also have more clean water on the downstream. Yeah, and, and I am guessing that also besides the, uh, the the right of access to water is also the responsibility of keeping it clean, not only the, the landowners, but everybody, because it, it affects downstream, right? So if you want to exactly. make a good use of the resource, you also are responsible for keeping it clean and not uh, polluting it, so everybody else along the way can benefit from it, that it's a... Uh, it's a very important uh, education tool or awareness tool for the communities, I'm guessing. So, Alberto, you were mentioning your colorful species in the importance of their aesthetic beauty, I should say, to call attention. And uh, it, it is also a good way to communicate or to generate interest about conservation. Do you find when you see the mannequin and logos and, and just in uh, in people's minds, um, that it also uh, is the will to celebrate uh, biodiversity or celebrate life? Well, yes, definitely. I think most people are naturally willing to have a healthy environment. So when we give them the information and some motivation and we explain them the importance of uh, one bird to the forest, the importance of the forest to the water they need, then when they make these connections, I think it makes a, a huge change. So we are trying to make it even more important than the beauty and the charisma. We always try to relate the endangered animals we work with with some of the resources they use on a daily basis, you know. And it's 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 easier than you think, you know. Sometimes because of these domino effects in nature, when you when you pull out one piece, you have an effect on the other. And when when you start explaining these relations and they see these relations on their day to day life, that's when they get involved. Yeah, in, in, I often we've also seen that, uh, icon animals are good also for strengthening these links in the community, especially in our Latin culture where we love to, uh, do the festivals and the celebrations, community celebrations, uh, to use these charismatic species as symbols to celebrate. In, in our case, we have the day of the cotton cup tamarind once a year. And it's amazing how people love to come and, and dance and sing and uh, and play uh, and everything around the species. Oh, yes. I think celebrations are really important to consolidate the, the message in the communities in a fun way. And in a way, they are used in, in other types of celebrations. And uh, we always try to do that. For our migratory bird festival, for example, when the migratory birds are around, we have... Uh, uh, a festival just celebrating that they are around and they are bringing tourists and they are bringing uh, the services that they provide for the environment. But I think it's really important to celebrate in a in a in a more informal and fun way, including you know strict information, delivering a message, bringing more fun to the community. I think it's a good way to consolidate these ideas. And when you have a good awareness campaign, you don't really have to do everything, you know, because people would, would feel part of the campaign. 
And for example, in, in the Araripe, now we have three or four different songs that local songwriters wrote for the mannequin. We didn't have to do anything. <laughs> Just provide them with the pride, you know, the pride of hosting yeah. such an important bird, such a charismatic bird in their region. You know, the, the greatest cultural festival in the Araripe region is a musical festival. And when we managed to insert the Aripe mannequin in this festival, make the mannequin the symbol of the festival, it is the symbol of the festival right now is the Aripe mannequin sitting on a, on a guitar. So when, when, when the bird became a symbol of this, the most important festival, it was huge. You know, that's some small things that you do in an awareness campaign that gets a lot of people involved. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you feel like things are, the message is going through. <laughs> it's reaching audiences. That's amazing. Uh, Alberto, tell us about your, your future plans or your uh, long-term vision. Well, my long-term vision right now is to focus on rewilding processes. I've been, I actually decided to stop a little bit to, to devise a rewilding strategy. So I'm, I'm doing a framework for informed rewilding so that we can restore ecosystems not just in our reserves, but in other reserves in a responsible way. Because we are living in a, in a, in a period of desalination where many species have gone extinct and many populations of species that used to be common, they are in very much reduced numbers. And this has a long-term effect on, on ecosystems. We are impoverishing ecosystems in the long term. So what I've been trying to do now is focusing not just on the endangered species, we will keep working with the endangered species for a long time, but we are taking a more holistic approach to restoration, to ecosystem restoration, which is bringing back some of the pieces that are missing to the ecosystem. For example, in the Araripe, the Oasis Araripe Reserve, there are some species that used to be there that are not, that, not there anymore, that used to be really good seed dispersers, like parrots like toucans, like rares. So we are planning to bring back these animals to the area to improve environmental quality and promote ecosystem restoration. Yeah, but it seems like a great timing for that. I think a lot of the uh, of the approaches in the next 10 years, I believe, uh, worldwide will be on recovering habitats. You know, fingers crossed that there is the, the support to that and that is very similar to actually what we're hoping to do in our work as well. It's um it's a habitat approach with uh key species, but trying to reestablish those natural processes. It's quite a big challenge, isn't it? Rewilding is a big challenge, is a long term challenge. What I think is the best cost effective solution to restore ecosystems. I've worked trying to to restore ecosystems in different occasions, and it's very, very difficult because ecosystems are very complex. And uh, so if you want to do a a responsible rewilding project, you really have to understand what was there before all this defoundation happened because most of these relations, they have been built for three, five, sometimes 10 million years. And in the long term, I think we'll recover some really important uh, ecosystem services that are important for Mother Earth and for human well-being. Yes, I agree with you that it's a complicated process and it's also very expensive (laughs) and requiring a lot of effort, patience and and long-term support. 
Alberto, how can how can people help? How can people help your conservation work? Well, one thing I keep telling people is that conserving is much cheaper than restoring. So if you could get involved in conservation in their daily lives, simple things that you can do to reduce your footprint. Now, if you don't know your footprint in the world, have a look in the internet. There's lots of websites that can calculate your personal individual footprint. And it's very interesting to calculate your footprint because you realize that there are things. You never realize that you're having an impact on the world by doing those things. So when you start thinking about this, I think start changing your mindset, which is the first step to start changing your behavior. And if you want to go further than just reducing your impact, you could think about doing something more proactive, you know, doing something in your neighborhood, doing something with your community, or even starting an NGO to do something that you believe that you have to be done to, you know, to, to live in a better world, live a better world for our children. <laughs> like you guys did, right? When you started Aquasis. <laughs> yes, I think I, w I, I, I was very lucky. I was very lucky because I think When you get a group of people that is really interested and motivated, it uh, it makes a difference. You know, it, it makes you believe. It makes you be more persistent. And I think it, I was lucky in that sense. There was a really good group of people that uh, helped each other to be focused and motivated because it's it's really difficult to start an NGO in the first few years. But if you survive the first few years, it's very very rewarding. Yes, I think it was a, it's, it, that, that is very powerful to get together people that are uh, passionate and that share that motivation. And yeah, I would add to that is that we all need to find what, what makes us feel passionate about, um, and what makes us feel motivated. And seeing this, this kind of work really, I'm sure will motivate a lot of people to follow those the steps and, and chip in for a better world. It's all in our hands, I would say. I want to close this inspiring conversation with you, Alberto, with this great last story and with this message of conservation success. It has been a great pleasure speaking to you, Alberto. Thank you for sharing these stories on the Adelipe Mannequin with us. And to our listeners, I encourage you to discover more about the Land Acquisition Fund and IUCNML. You can find all links to the website and social media in the show notes. I very much appreciate your listening to this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please make sure that you share this podcast with your friends, family, colleagues, and whoever may be interested in nature conservation stories. If you want to be updated about the next episode, make sure to subscribe to the Conservation Inspiration Podcast channel. Till next time. <laughs>